I do hope that you have come, that you have met the Lord Jesus Christ, that you have been forgiven of your sins, and that you have a relationship with Him. Good morning. It's great to see you this morning. Open your Bibles to the book of Colossians. It's Paul's letter to the church at Colossae. Colossians in the New Testament, our text today, is from Colossians chapter 3. While you're turning there, just to bring you up to date, we are, or what we're studying, we've been focusing upon, first of all, understanding the assignment that God gives every believer, and certainly that God has given our church, and the assignment is making disciples. Making disciples. How do we assist and help others, first of all, come to know Christ and follow Him, and second, how do we strengthen one another in that process? And so we understand the need and the importance of that, I believe, and now we're we, focused on, we are focusing on undertaking the assignment. What are the practical steps? How do we move step-by-step step into identifying and developing, discipling relationships? And for some of us, we have the relationships. They just aren't discipling relationships. How do we turn our focus and our attention to investing what God is teaching us and God's presence in our life into the lives of those that God brings into our relationships? And the first thing that we're going to focus on now is, is uh, what we're focusing on this morning is, is getting your gear, getting your tools ready, gathering your tools, being equipped to enter significantly and intentionally into those relationships. Colossians chapter 3, Paul is bringing this church to the place where he's talking about now that you've been raised with Christ or now that we have a relationship with God, there are some things that we need to know, understand, and do. So we're going to read the first three verses, and then we're going to jump down to verse 12. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. So we have identified with Christ. He's given us his life. We're to seek the things above where Christ is Seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And that was through verse 4 rather than just through verse 3. But now let's go into verse 12. And we're talking about the put on here. We've talked about some put to death or some put off things. Now, in verse 12, he says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And we'll stop there at verse 17. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have given it to us through these men that you inspired to write. Thank you that you have preserved it for us. Thank you that it is living and active. And we pray that you will speak to us this morning. That you will further equip us and further call us further enable us as we turn to you in repentance for our disobedience and in dependence 
as we, by faith, live and are faithful to accomplish the task in your power as you work mightily within us. Father, I pray that we'll start to care increasingly more and more and more for those that you bring into our life through a fellowship of a congregation and those through other relationships that you provide for us, that we will not see, not be self-focused or selfishly focused, but that we will first of all set our mind and our heart and our attention upon you. And then, Father, we will in honor prefer one another, that we will be the vessels that you use, the means by which, the tools that you use to help others deepen their walk and grow in their relationship with you. Our desire is that we may present every man complete, perfect, mature at the day of your appearing. Father, make that our passion. In your name I pray. Amen. Wasn't too many years ago my dad bought a boat. It was great, but it was a 14-foot hourglass tri-hull with a 55 mercury outboard on it. The thing was, it was a small boat, and so it had external gas tanks, two little gas tanks that were flat so they would fit under the back next to the transom of the boat. Mark and I, my brother, decided we were going to go skiing on Lake Hartwell. I'm sure some, many of you have engaged in that activity. Any water skiers here? Are you with me at all? Nobody's seen Nobody water skis at all, all right? It was great. We had sunny days, not cold like this morning, but beautiful summer days. We had, were both home from college. We hooked the boat up to the, to the truck. We went off down to the lake. We went to start the, we launched the boat, pulled it up to the pier at Wright Park. We were ready to go. And then I looked at Mark and said, where are the gas tanks? And he said, I thought you put them in the boat. And we got to the boat to go skiing and spend a glorious day on Lake Hartwell and didn't have the gas tanks. Have you ever been somewhere and didn't have something you needed? Pretty frustrating, right? Not to be equipped. Unfortunately, I can give you so many examples from my own life. I've been fishing and left my tackle box at home. I met some people to go running and I didn't have my running shoes with me. Have you ever tried that? Doesn't work. I have been setting up a remote ham radio site and didn't carry the antenna that I was supposed to use. Uh, Saturday, I guess it was Saturday, Saturday, Suzanne can help, Friday or Saturday. I got home and I was looking for my book bag, Friday. I was just looking for my book bag, yes, Friday. I was looking for my book bag because there were some things that I needed to do and what I needed to use was in my book bag and it wasn't in the truck and it wasn't in my little study at the house and it wasn't next to my recliner, and that's where everything goes. It's one of those three places. And so it must be at the office. So I come back to the office, and no, it's not in the office. And so I go back home, we eat dinner. And it's got some pretty important stuff in it. It's got my laptop. It's got my iPad. It's got some other stuff that uh, are fairly valuable and fairly necessary for me. And so thinking about where all the places it might be, it had to be here somewhere. I usually walk around and leave stuff laying around. And so I came back up here, and I began to go room to room, and I visited every room in this building looking for that laptop. It's already not in the truck. It's already not in the house. And so I begin to recast my day. I sent some of you guys a text asking if you'd seen it. Uh, and I began to recast my day. Where had I been? Where had I been? And I had met a young man over at the coffee shop to talk about this congregation, what God's doing here, and that sort of thing. And evidently, when I got up, I took my phone and left my backpack sitting right there in the coffee shop. Now, the good news is they found it. They locked it up. It'll be there when I get there Monday. But have you ever looked for something or you assigned a task or given a job and you haven't been equipped to do it? 
What I want us to do right now in this text is to recognize that in our call to make disciples, that there's some equipping that we need. There are some tools that we need to gather. There are some skills and some attitudes that we need to develop in order to be efficient and effective at allowing God to live in us, to live through us, to have an impact upon the lives of people around us for His glory. And if you're taking notes, I would encourage you, as we reflect on the first three verses of this chapter, don't forget who you are. Don't forget who you are. Uh, The first three verses. Well, let's just begin with the first. If then you have been raised with Christ... You are alive. You are raised with Christ. You have been brought to life. You're to be seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, setting your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died. You've died to the old way of living, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. We need to recognize that, as we covered in previous messages, the way to make disciples is, first of all, make sure that you are a disciple. You are God's chosen one, verse 12, holy and beloved. And so there's some affirmation in these texts that we need to get firmly identified. We are who, as we sang this morning, we are who he says we are. I have been raised with Christ. I have a new life. I have been raised with Christ. I am continually seeking to obtain the heart and the values of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm setting my mind on him, setting my mind on what's above, knowing him more, experiencing him more. I am trusting Jesus to provide these things continually. That's what he does in that place of authority as he's seated at the right hand of the Father. I am continually thinking and considering and meditating on these things. When other thoughts come in and selfish thoughts and worldly thoughts and fleshly thoughts come in, I can set them aside and set my attention upon him. The old way has no power over me because I have died to it. My life is hidden in Christ, with Christ in God. I have security, safe place, intimacy with Him. And now I get glimpses of glory. One day I'll share His glory. One day I'll share Him face to face. I'll see Him face to face. But now I get glimpses of of glory. And so what I want you to remember is that when we start talking about entering into relationships and having healthy relationships and even starting new relationships with different people, there are going to be specific challenges. And you have to remember who you are. You have to look to Jesus to be your source and your refuge. He is the only one who can meet all your needs. Listen to this statement. If your contentment and your joy is going to be derived from the behavior and choices of other people, you're not going to have much contentment, and you're not going to have much joy. Did you hear that? If your sense of peace and security and your sense of identity and the effusiveness of joy that we're to be filled with as we set our minds and our hearts upon Christ is dependent upon how other people treat us, then we're going to have a lot of discontentment and we're going to be missing a lot of joy. Jesus is unfailingly faithful. He is continually present. He is amazingly sufficient. And as we seek Him, we find our contentment, our peace, and the basis for our relationship and the ability to be able to invest in others through our devotional relationship with Him, through our intimacy with Him. 
I too love Psalm 63. Thank you for reading this morning, Ella. One of the passages that I like, by the way, food keeps coming up in our conversation. You guys hear these phrases, I hunger after you or I'm sated in you. I, I, I love the mindset. We, uh, we went to a family reunion, my mother's mother's side of the family, family reunion yesterday. And it was good to meet relatives. You guys, I'm sure some of you like my are like me, you don't know all your relatives yet. And so you continue to meet and make new connections with family members that have been there all along, but you're just getting to know them. It was good to travel with Suzanne. It's always good to travel with Suzanne. And it was good to see family members that we do know. But one of the most joyous parts about going to King Street, South Carolina is Brown's Barbecue. Are y'all barbecue people? Yeah, but what kind of barbecue people are you? I mean, are you Sheely's mustard-based barbecue? Or are you North Carolina uh, ketchup and vinegar-based barbecue? Outback Steakhouse. Outback Steakhouse. All right. Are you, see, are you Henry's or are you, you know, got a big boy. You got, got some choices here. Well, I was raised on Brown's barbecue, and it is spiced and seasoned into the meat, and there is nothing like it in the world. And this is not a commercial. It's really not. But I don't get it often, and it's really good. And it's really good. And I ate enough for several people. And I'm just, you guys know what it's like to eat a full meal that was really good, and you just kind of sit back and you enjoy it. And you're just like, ah, that's great. Well, listen to what the psalmist says, Ella read this morning. My soul will be satisfied in you. As with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Can I tell you something that your contentment and your joy does not stem or should not stem from how people treat you or don't treat you? It should stem from how God has treated you and what he has done for you and what he continues to do for you and through you and in you. He loves you. You guys ever been to a tough time and then you went and you found somebody you loved and they just encouraged you and they gave you the strength to re-engage? Again, many examples from my own life. I remember the first church staff position I had not living under my dad's roof was I was a minister to the deaf at 38th Avenue Baptist Church in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. God blessed me in a lot of different ways there. It's a great place to serve. Wiley Abel was the pastor, had a great staff, but there were occasional challenges, and I was a seminary student, and I was a seminary student who had fallen in love with a beautiful young lady that was going to church there. Suzanne and I met there, and uh, uh, we married there, met, dated, and married there. But I remember one day shortly after we had married, it had been just one of those challenging days. School was hard. I was struggling whether I was going to get through school or not. I was not fulfilling my responsibilities adequately at the church job that they were paying me to do, and there was some frustration there, but I wasn't the only one frustrated. Uh, there are people who have told me, and I, I, I've kind of taken this to heart, that I have two spiritual gifts. I can put people to sleep, and I can make people mad. Just not at the same time. I'm either making people mad or I'm putting people to sleep. Well, this was one of those weeks where I had made people mad. And there was some tension on staff at church, and it was one of those. You guys ever feel sorry for yourself? I'm doing the best I can. And you just this unsettledness. And I went home, and Suzanne was there. And we are newlyweds. And she greets me at the door with a hug and a kiss. She has prepared dinner 
We sit down and we talk. We have a wonderful evening. And I think, I can face tomorrow. Because I know, regardless of who I offend or what I do or what I don't do, or who's happy with me or who's not happy with me, she loves me. And I'm not in this alone. And if you multiply that by the magnitude of God's grace and God's love, can I tell you that you can deal with any difficulty or any challenge in any relationship and in any situation secure because you have been hidden in Christ Jesus in God. Amen? See, the problem that we have with interpersonal relationships, when we did that Barna survey, and I shared with that you that last week that said most people don't engage in discipling relationships because they hadn't found anybody that they want to be in that kind of relationship with. And I think one of the reasons that we're so touchy about who we can open up our lives up to is because it's a threat to us. We become vulnerable. And the way that you deal with personal vulnerability in relationships is to find your security in the unshakable rock of the Lord Jesus Christ. And because he's got you, and he's got you covered, and he's got you held, and he's got you wrapped up, and he's got you protected, and he is your sufficiency, you can be vulnerable in every area of your life. Isn't that a great place to be? The first thing... To be healthy in discipling relationships is to remember who you are. You see, Jesus is the focus. In discipleship, teaching is the task. Maturity is our goal. God's Spirit is the life changer. We're here to do something to help people make progress toward Christ and to multiply. And so life then is putting off the old and putting on the new. It's no longer thinking like I used to think or trusting in the things I used to trust in. Now it's, it's becoming more like Christ and helping others to do the same. And so there are some things that you got to do. Here's a tool bag, if you will. There's some equipping, some mindsets, some things that we have to put on. Verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness. And patience. And so the second part of this is just gear up, put on, gear up, gear up for success. Become in practice what you became at salvation. Follow hard after Christ. As you put stuff off, there are things that you have to put on, and you have to put on something. <laughs> I love the way he describes it. And I want you guys in the study questions to go deeper into some of this stuff. How do you put on a heart? Put on a heart. Put on a heart of compassion. You see, this is not simple behaviors that we engage in. This is a transformation that the Holy Spirit works in our life. It's not like a switch you can just flip and say, oh, I'll be compassionate today, not tomorrow. It's a renewing that takes place inwardly in our hearts. The qualities in this list flow out of a heart that is right with God. They come from the inside, not from the outside. Suzanne's dad had heart surgery. He had a heart replacement he had a heart replacement. And honestly, physically what happened to him is spiritually what happens to us when we come to Christ. The heart of stone, Ezekiel says, is removed. And the heart of flesh is placed in. We become alive. But with his heart replacement, he had to be under continual medication so his body wouldn't reject the heart. You and I, we have to be continually having our heart renewed, laying aside the old way of our flesh that fights against the new heart continually surrendering to the true reality that we're living in now. We continue to stimulate, to learn, to change, to renew our heart. And so we put on a compassionate heart. I want to go down this list really quick. 
So what does it mean to have a compassionate heart? A compassionate heart is one that's filled with love and concern rather than selfishness. Compassion for others. It means that you're willing to engage mentally and emotionally with others' well-being. Compassion. Caring. Genuine care. And you guys know what it looks like when people care. And you know what it looks like when people don't, don't you? Be caring. The next word is kindness. And I have all these words in Greek. I'm not going to attempt to pronounce them. I'll be glad to give you my notes and help you look those up. But it's also translated as moral goodness or integrity. It refers to how one person treats another. And I love this. It refers to meeting real needs in God's way, in His timing, for His glory. Real needs in God's way, in God's timing. Kindness. It is useful activity. The next word that we're given here, the next tool in the toolbox is humility. It means lowliness. It's an inside-out virtue that's produced by comparing ourselves to the Lord rather than others. Here's what's going to happen. When you get into these relationships, humility might be hard to come by because we all come with this sense of, of pride, this sense of self. And when you are encouraging someone in their walk with Christ in an area where God has already given you victory, the tendency is for us to forget it was God that gave us the victory and to claim it for ourselves. So if someone's struggling, let's say, with their finances or someone's struggling with an attitude with a particular person or someone's struggling with this area and God is using us in their life to speak truth, and we got to be careful that we don't, all right, I'm here to fix you. you got to get this right. I'm here to make sure you're doing what's right. Now, we do want to encourage them in obedience and to do what's right, but we do it recognizing that we have sinned, that we are the recipients of grace. It means living, that we live not dependent upon our own strength or our own will, but living in complete dependence upon God. Now, how many of you would classify yourself as meek? Is meek a good word in our culture, in our society? Nobody wants to be meek, right? And yet, that is one of the defining descriptions of Moses in the Old Testament. I love meekness. It simply means strength under control. It is power with reserve. It does not mean somebody who is wishy-washy. It does not mean somebody who is, what, milk toast. It does not mean somebody who can't make a decision or stand or do what's right. It means that you do what's right with gentleness. And, of course, the last in that list is, of this list is patience. And you guys will remember this. I do know how to pronounce this word. It's macrothumia. Macro for a long time, thumos, heat. You stay under it for a long time, and it embraces steadfastness, staying power. Be patient. Be enduring. Another way that this word is often used is called steadfast endurance. Now, when you begin to enter into discipling relationships, any relationship really, but discipling relationships with someone, you're going to need staying power because people will frustrate you. People are messy. That was seminary 101 for me. People are messy. Uh, the first thing that they taught us is that you're going to love. Here's, here's this pie-in-the-sky idea of being a pastor. I'm going to come, and I'm going to open the Word of God, and I'm going to study it and be faithful. I'm going to prepare messages, and I'm going to stand up in the pulpit, and I'm going to preach, and everyone's going to sit there spellbound. Some of them are going to be studiously taking notes. 
Some of them are going to give me the visual feedback of nodding. Some of them are just going to be awe, you know, of God's word. And, 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 and as a result of the sermon, whatever we preach on, everybody is going to adopt it. And that's how they're going to behave from then on. And all of a sudden you preach on love and it becomes a loving congregation. You preach a message on grace and it becomes a gracious congregation. You preach a message on forgiveness and all of a sudden it's a forgiving congregation. You preach a message on giving and all of a sudden it's a generous congregation. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? And then, of course, you have the hubris as a young pastor to think, whatever I preach on this week, they're going to remember it forever. And then all of a sudden you become a pastor for church. And that old saying I heard years ago, to live above with saints we love, oh, that'll be glory. But to live below with these Christians I know, that's another story. And all of a sudden things get challenging and things get hard. And sometimes we just want to quit. One of the biggest challenges I have in working with pastors who are seeking to revitalize churches is about two years into it, they're like, I'm done. I'm done. These people won't do what God says do. They they won't give up on this or they won't do this. And it seems like it's a continual challenge. And can I tell you that any relationship that's a long-term relationship is going to be a continual challenge. Stand fast. I do want to fly in the face quickly of some of this contemporary teaching that really honestly irritates me bad. If somebody gives you a hard time and they're not there building you up and lifting you up and making you successful, cast them out of your life and only hang around with those people who lift you up. Where do you see that in the Word of God? First of all, what makes us think we're any easier to get along with than anybody else? That's first of all. But second of all, God puts people into your life to strip off your pretentiousness and reveal the fleshly attitudes of your own heart so that you can identify them and embrace them and confess them and repent of them and allow your heart to be transformed from selfishness to compassion. Do you understand what I'm saying? Don't be too quick to give up on people that irritate you and that frustrate you. As a matter of fact, use, let God use you to be the, the one that lifts them up. You need staying power. It's like a wedding. I'll go back to the wedding analogy. I've been to a lot of weddings. I've conducted a lot of weddings. We do premarital counseling It's very important that we do premarital counseling because I have discovered that without premarital counseling, she thinks he's perfect and he thinks she's perfect. And then they get married and they realize they're not perfect. And what we do in premarital counseling is we seek to identify, oh, yeah, it's all it's it's all great now. But there are going to be some challenges, and we begin to explore what the Scripture says and to help them understand each other and prepare for the life that's coming. Because people will say things that hurt your feelings. Don't we live in an age when it's easy to to take offense? Everybody gets offended at everything. 
People will hurt your feelings. They'll do things that you find offensive. They won't call when you think they should. They will call when they shouldn't. You'd rather they not. They will be there when you. They will not be there when you expect them to be. They will do things that you think are wrong. If if they can irritate you at some point along the lines, they're going to irritate you. They will find ways to frustrate you. You in creative ways that you had never imagined. And so Paul goes on in verse thirteen. He says in the context of relationships in the body of Christ you need to bear with one another bearing with one another and if one has a complaint against another forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you so you must also forgive and so I want to I want to come back to this verse later but I want I want to give you the third point on your outline when you begin to enter intentionally into discipling relationships you got to manage your expectations You've got to manage your expectations. If you are seeking that this relationship is going to be what fills me and it's going to be what encourages me and it's going to be meet all my needs, you're wrong. You can expect discipleships to be uh, discipling relationships to be awkward. By the way, do you guys like awkward? See, for a long time, anytime a situation, anybody, anytime somebody publicly made a scene, I was just embarrassed for them. Or anytime somebody was on a platform and they were struggling, I was, could so identify. I'm thinking, oh, man, this is just the worst situation. Or anytime you get in a room and you guys ever been in a room, you just didn't know what to say and nobody was really saying anything. It's just an awkward situation. Can, can I encourage you? I want you to begin to embrace those. Embrace those. Look for those. Get accustomed to awkward situations. Challenging, difficult, rewarding, frustrating, and a lot more. And we will, in future weeks, come back and look at, specifically, Paul and Barnabas. They're a good fit. Paul and John Mark, not so good a fit. Paul and Silas, Barnabas and John Mark. And look at some of these interpersonal relationships. But let's just (coughs) focus right now on bearing with one another. The word for bear in the original Greek means to endure something unpleasant or difficult. It means has been interpreted in some translations, put up with people. You guys ever have those relationships you feel like I'm just putting up with this person? Can I tell you that's biblical? As a matter of fact, didn't Jesus say that? How long must I put up with you? Matthew 17, a direct quote. A couple of times you know that he looked at his disciples and he said, how long am I going to have to put up with you? And we know the answer. We know the answer. All the way through. All the way to the end. All the way through. Bearing with one another implies a willingness to endure with other believers despite differences and frustrations. But it's not just putting up with one another or glossing over difficulties while harboring bitterness or allowing sinful behaviors to run rampant. Putting up with it and just gritting your teeth or just saying, well, that's just the way they are. And you just get bitter, and you hold a grudge. It's more than that. As a matter of fact, he goes straight from bearing with, putting up with, to forgiveness. Believers are a family, and we should treat one another with kindness and with grace, and this includes forgiveness. Instead of demanding perfection in others or finding our contentment from how others treat us, we need to be willing to endure what other, how other believers behave, their quirks and their oddities, and when they fail, we need to be ready to forgive them and to help them heal. And so 
Now we're to the sermon. You guys ready? Forgive. 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 How big a deal is forgiveness? The word that he uses here for forgiveness, charizomai. How many of you know the Greek word charis? It's the word for grace. You see, when believers forgive each other, it's not simply that we say, all right, you've offended me, you've hurt my feelings, you said something, you did something, you're not doing something, whatever it is that's got me irritated on the side, I'm just going to get even with you. You don't talk to me, I'm not going to talk to you. You don't reply to my text, I'm not going to reply to yours. You talk about me, I'm going to talk about you. And you get into this eye-for-eye mindset, and you're just going to get back. And mercy is, no, I'm not going to give you what you've earned. It's a good starting place, isn't it? Aren't you glad for the mercy of God? Amen. Be glad for the mercy of God. Can I tell you what he's commanding here when he says, my one another? He's saying, don't just not give justice, but give grace. Give good in its place. And i got to tell you, that is not natural. It is not of the flesh. It's only of the Spirit. It is a characteristic of God. You're never more like Christ than when you're forgiving. But you're never more unchristlike than when you aren't. And just because I love you and I care, unforgiveness is a sin that will hinder and hamper and disrupt your fellowship with God. I've known churches and people in churches who for years were just barely getting by with their attitudes and barely surviving because they could barely get along because they were no power of God, no life, no joy. No presence and no peace. No genuine worship because they were holding on to hurts, grudges, and offenses that they were not willing to let go. It's massive. <laughs> Listen, have a compassionate heart. Be kind. Be gracious. Put up with one another, which means endure. Bear with one another. And that requires that you're going to have to cultivate an attitude of gracious forgiveness toward one another. And that only comes when we... How, how are we to forgive? You guys know the answer to this question. Sunday School 101. How are we to forgive? We're to forgive as... Yeah, do it louder. We are to forgive as Christ has forgiven us. Isn't that great? How did He forgive you? How did He forgive you? He forgave us on the cross. His blood washed away our sins. He's cleansed us and washed us and made us as though we'd never sinned. He separates our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. He blots them out of the book of remembrance. And he remembers them no more. So here, let me challenge you. How many times have you said, well, I'll forgive him, but I can't forget it. Been there? Yeah? Can I tell you, that's not the kind of forgiveness that God has given you. That complete forgiveness is forgiving and saying, 
I'm going to forgive, but not with my hands up. I'm going to forgive with my palms down. You don't owe me anything, and I will remember it no more. And so we have this compassion and forgiveness. And can I tell you that when you get into any relationship, but particularly, particularly in a discipling relationship where you're desiring to see someone intentionally follow closer after Christ, you're going to have to develop this attitude that says, I'm going to forgive them. I'm going to forgive them when they ask for it. I'm going to forgive them when they don't. I'm going to be gracious as Christ has been gracious to me. Now, for me to experience Christ for washing away my sin, I repent. I come to him in repentance and faith. But because he has done that for me, I can be gracious to one another. I turn the other cheek. I give them kindness when they deserve complaint. I give them kindness even when I'm provoked in my heart. It's the command. There's a great resource from Kent Sandy called The Peacemakers on Resolving Conflict. I strongly recommend it to you. But he deals with how we're to think about others. We're to be reminded of Calvary's love. Amy Carmichael beautifully said, If I say yes, I forgive, but I cannot forget, as though the God who twice a day Washes all the sand on the shores of the world could not wash away such memories from my mind that I know nothing of Calvary's love. Isn't that great? Believers are called to forgive one another as the Lord forgives us. my, and remembers them no more. Meekness is that we forgive. We don't compromise truth, but we always act in love. And that's where he goes in that next phrase. There in verse 13, we put on love, an act of the will, an act of surrender, an act of faith. And let me be clear here. Disunity, disharmony, discord, conflict in relationships are not the result of our circumstances. They're not the results of our situation. They're the consequences of our sin and rebellious heart and our unwillingness to be obedient to what God's called us to do. Now, there are some, I don't know if I have time to do this or not. There are some things that you need to do to get along with others, but can I give you some things that you need to not do to get along with others? How about that? Let's, can, we, can we lighten this up and focus a little bit? One sarcastic article I read gave seven keys for what not to do. Don't let your emotions build up so you're in an explosive frame of mind. Short accounts, short accounts. You should not assume you know all the facts and you're always right. You should not tell everyone else about your conflicts except for the person that you're struggling with. You should not focus on all the faults of the other person making as many accusations as possible about them and focus on their weaknesses to the extent that it makes them seem like they're mentally unstable. You should not judge the motives of the offending party and keep track of all the ways they possibly could have offended others in the past or elevate your conflict to a black and white, always right, never wrong issue. And when you have conflict, you should always press for total victory and unconditional surrender. When a person, when personally attacked, make certain that you pass the buck and blame anyone else you can and don't take any responsibility in the disagreement at all. There are so many things in that in just there. But rather than unpack those, I just want to sum this up with the command to put on love. You see, the command to put on love and to teach and admonish is given to all believers without exception. It's not limited to your church staff or to elders or to missionaries or to fathers or to, to mothers or people blessed with the gift of teaching. It's for everyone, believers, young and old. We are to be engaged in loving, extending grace, teaching the word and sharing with others around us, investing our lives in others so that they 
walk closely with Christ. And so we're going to close with this. So how do you do these relationships? How are you consistently engaged in discipling relationships? And the point on your outline is simply put first things first. What's the first thing? What's the first thing? In putting first things first, what's the first thing? Let me, let me rephrase it another way. What's the first and greatest commandment? I say, I love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, thy soul, and might, thy strength. This is the first and great commandment. The second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Upon these hang all the law and the prophets. Verse 15, he says in Colossians 3, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called by one body. Be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. All right, guys. In the interest of time, I'm going to go ahead and close this sermon. But I think it's important that we recognize we have an assignment. You've got a task. We have a task unfinished, and that is to proclaim the good news of Christ to a world that doesn't know him. And it is to help those who have become saved, who have been brought to life, grow deeper in their walk and their relationship with him. You are called and given the task of making disciples. I am a disciple who makes disciples. And how do I do that? I do it intentionally by asking God to shape the relationships I'm in and to broaden that and add some relationships in which God can use me to invest my life to help others grow deeper in their walk with him. And I'm going to be offended, and it's going to be hard, and it's going to be difficult, and I'm going to be tempted to give up. But when I put on these characteristics, when I take off the things of the flesh, it won't me to be offended and hurtful. It won't me to be isolationist and separated. In Christ, I'm able to put on all of these characteristics, including putting up with people and forgiving people, and above all things, putting on love. And God completely and radically transforms my worship life with him and my ability to worship with you. And so where do we begin with these relationships? We begin with worshiping God. We begin with devotion and love. We begin with Psalm 63, verses 1 through 8. We begin by approaching him in love and worship. And so next week, where I'm going with this series is we're going to look at, all right, now you're going to have a relationship with someone. What are you going to talk? Invite somebody out to coffee. What are you going to talk about? How do, you, how do you determine what the needs are? How do you determine how you can be used? If you're having str- a struggle having intimate friendships, come next week. We're going to walk you through what the Scripture has to say about things that you do and say and think in order for God to use you specifically in helping and seeing someone grow deeper in their walk with Christ. It's good for parents. It's good for children. It's good for grandparents. And it's, it's good for the body of Christ as we go into that. But we begin... Simply by surrendering ourselves to God and worshiping Him. Now, how do we end this message? I want to ask you, is there somebody you need to forgive? And it will be a very unusual person that says no. So let me rephrase. Who has offended you lately? And they came to mind when I just asked you that question. As a child of God, may I invite you to free yourself of the burden of unforgiveness? To remove yourself from the acid of bitterness? 
to ask God to fill you and wash you and cleanse you. You see, our joy comes when we place our attention upon Him and we let others, what they owe us, we release that. And so I invite you to spend some time now saying, God, you've brought this person to my mind. I may need to talk to them. I may not. That's another message, and there's a deeper application. But as far as my relationship with you, you've said that if I don't forgive others, you won't forgive me. I want you to forgive me. You have forgiven me. I want to extend that grace to others. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the opportunity that you give us to live with imperfect people as imperfect people. Thank you for the life of Christ that you have given to us, who is perfect, who washes us and cleanses us and has extended grace to us. And I pray that you will increasingly make us grace-filled and grace-giving people for your glory so that we and others may follow more closely after you. Father, we love you and we thank you. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen.